Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, we are finishing our series in the Minor Prophets today. We've uh, spent 12 weeks spread out really over quite a few months looking at what we have called the not-so-minor prophets. We've been considering the message that they bring to us. We've been considering their value and importance, not only in Scripture, but also to our life together as a church and as individual Christians. We are um, finishing today with the final book of the Bible, or book of the Old Testament, not the final book of the Bible, uh, the final book of the Old Testament, which is the prophet Malachi. I'm going to read for us just a couple of verses, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive in together. This is from Malachi chapter 3. Now, uh, I'm not going to have very many verses on the screen today, but you'll notice another thing we get to have here is pew Bibles. There are Bibles in front of you, so if you didn't bring your own, feel free to grab one and follow along in the text. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us as we study Malachi together. Pray you would help us to be receptive to what your spirit is teaching us. And Lord, as the spirit uses this text to refine us, to challenge and convict and change us. Lord, I pray that none of us would be resistant to that, but rather that we would welcome the refining of the Holy Spirit, that we would welcome him stripping away that which doesn't please you and replacing it with those righteous things that give you honor and glory. Father, give us ears that are able to hear, hearts willing to understand and obey. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There may be nothing in our experience here as Americans in the 21st century that puts a pit in your stomach like this. The check engine light. I hate this light with everything I am. I am not a mechanic, I do not know cars, and this light means money. Um, about a month ago, we were driving along, and our Nissan needed to get inspected anyway, and there comes the dreaded light. I'm thinking, oh man, all right, well, we're taking it in, I'm sure it's nothing. Um, it was $3,000 worth of nothing. <laughs> Just, that's a gut punch. Um, and it was, a, it was a little something in the gas can or gas tank or whatever it is. I don't know cars, all right? It was something there that had to do not just with the gas cap, but something in the tank itself. 
and the computer didn't like it, the computer put the light on, and we were not allowed to pass inspection until the little light went away. And so they worked at it and worked at it and worked at it until the light went away because the check engine light has one function. It is to tell you that something is wrong. That's it. It's all that it does. It doesn't tell you what's wrong. It just tells you that something is wrong. It doesn't tell you when everything is going right. Little check engine light doesn't come up and say, hey, you're doing a good job maintaining your car. That's not its function. Its function is to warn you when something is wrong. And something had happened in the life of the people of Israel that was functioning like a warning light. And the prophet Malachi noticed it, and he pointed it out so that they could then run all the diagnostics necessary to figure out what's wrong, why it's wrong, and what the treatment for this would be. That's what a prophet's function is. So identify when there's something wrong in the community, point it out like the warning light saying, hey, something's wrong here, and then diagnose it because God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. So God was speaking through Malachi, diagnosing the problem that was happening in Israel. But because God is a good and merciful God, he doesn't just leave it at the diagnosis. He actually says, here's how we're going to fix this. Here's the treatment for the problem. There's not just a diagnosis, there is a treatment. And so Malachi performs these three functions. He's the warning light, the emergency light, the engine light, whatever it is. But he's also going to help us with the diagnosis and then treat it. And what's remarkable about this is he's doing all this work after the exile. The people of God have already gone through a civil war. They've already been exiled and been dealing with the Babylonians and now the Persians. Some of them are starting to come back, but, but there's something wrong. The people have not been prioritizing the rebuilding of the temple. And Haggai, he shows up and he says, you need to rebuild this thing. You're so focused on your own lives and your own issues that you're neglecting the house of the Lord. And Zechariah comes right behind him and says, not only are you neg neglecting the, the house of the Lord, but you're neglecting your lives together and what it means to be the covenant community. And what's cool is the people of Israel seem to respond. About 40, 50 years later, Malachi comes on the scene, and the temple has, in fact, been rebuilt. We're going to see this in one of the verses, because God will say, I wish you would close the doors of the temple. Well, that implies that there are doors on the temple, that it has been rebuilt. They've obeyed what Haggai said, and the people have been worshiping like that, but there's a problem. Their hearts aren't in it. There's a problem with their worship. Now, the warning light wouldn't necessarily make us think that the issue is with the people. The warning light is a people's cry out to the Lord, thinking that actually there's something wrong with God. This is the check engine light in Malachi. Malachi 1, 2b. How have you loved us? This is the people speaking to God. You say you've loved us, but how exactly? doesn't feel like you love us. At this time, Israel is still a vassal of Persia. And we're talking the mid-400s, which means Persia is in a pitched battle with Greece. This is the height of the Greece-Persian wars. And in order to carry out a war like this, particularly not just on land but also on sea, 
In order to do this, you have to tax the absolute life out of everybody who is owned by you. And so Israel has found themselves taxed and taxed and taxed in order to fund Persia's war against Greece. And that war takes quite a while. That war will actually drift over three different Persian kings. It begins with Darius, goes all the way through Xerxes' reign, and doesn't end until Artaxerxes is on the throne. And so it takes us all the way from the return of the exile, the ministry of people like Daniel, all the way through what we find here in Malachi until we get to Esther. Esther's story takes place under that last Persian king, Artaxerxes. So there's this long time of war between Persia and Greece, and the way the Persians fund it is they say, everybody we own, including you, Israel, you give us money. You give us money, which means not a lot of stuff for you, not a lot of food for you, because you're not just giving us money, you're giving us supplies. Your grain, your food is going to care for the troops. Everything that you would give to the temple, you're actually going to start giving to our military. And Israel's struggling. They're hurting. And they cry out to the Lord, how exactly have you loved us? You say you've loved us, but how? Show me. Prove it. That's the check engine light. Something's not right. And, and it's helpful to think of it this way because we go to that same place sometimes. Hey, God, prove it. You say you love me. You say you've saved me in Jesus, but I'm just looking around at my life and I'd like you to show me exactly how have you loved me? What does that mean? And that's a check engine light showing that there's something wrong in our hearts. It doesn't mean that life isn't hard. It doesn't mean that things aren't going wrong. But when we take our circumstances and we then say, God, I'm not convinced you love us anymore, there is something that is off in the heart. The check engine light has come on. And we need to diagnose what's happening. So let's turn to the diagnosis. Because when the people cry out, how have you loved us? God doesn't turn a deaf ear. He responds. The entirety of the book of Malachi is God's response. In fact, when we see this, how have you loved us? This is God quoting the people, saying, this is what you've said. So let's look together, starting in verse 6, at the diagnosis. What's gone wrong in the relationship between God and the people that makes the people think God doesn't love them anymore? Well, first... Their worship is polluted. I'm going to read basically the entirety of this book. There's only four short chapters. I'm not going to put it all on the screen, so I encourage you to read along with me as you can. This is God speaking. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Economic circumstances had taken a turn. And because of that, the people of God had said, you know what? We're going to just stop giving our best to the temple. That unblemished lamb, that perfect lamb that we're supposed to give to the temple to be slaughtered for the forgiveness of our sins, for the covering of our guilt, we're not doing that anymore. No, you get the rejects, God. You get the blind lamb. You get the lame lamb. You get the one that's sick. We'll give that, but we need to keep the rest of this for us. But God had told the people generations before that if you were going to sacrifice on his altar, it needed to be a lamb without blemish or spot. That there could be no imperfections in this particular little animal. That was prophetic. It was prophetic of the one who would come, Jesus, without blemish or spot, never having sinned, and dying for the sins of the people. And so they were, they were despising their worship. They were polluting their worship because they gave their best to other worldly things and they gave the dregs, the extra, the little bit over here, they gave that to the Lord. And God, he will not accept this kind of an offering. In verse 11, he says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, you're, you're taking these diseased, sick animals, you're bringing them to me. You wouldn't bring them to your governor. You, you wouldn't do that to him. But me, I... I'm great among the nations. I deserve your best, not whatever you have left over. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and his fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So the first thing that has gone wrong in the relationship between God and his people is that the people are no longer giving their best to the Lord in worship, but they're offering instead polluted worship. Second in the diagnosis, deceptive preaching. The worship has been, has been polluted, and now the preaching itself is a problem because it is the priests who are offering the lambs in worship, and it is the priests who are supposed to be teaching the people. Chapter 2, now, O priests, this command is for you. If you'll not listen, if you'll not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offsprings, of your offerings, excuse me, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. 
My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in the awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So here we have the priests leading the people astray through the teaching, through their instruction. Their preaching is marked by partiality. Most likely what that means is that those who have money, those who have riches, they're, they're told what they need to hear, and the poor are often ignored. This makes sure that the priests get theirs, because when you brought something to the altar to be sacrificed, that was often how the Levites were able to eat. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have their, their job was the temple. They were able to eat because you brought food to them and sacrificed it on the altar. And so the priests, they began teaching based on what was going to make them wealthy or them comfortable. They began to twist the teachings of the Lord. They, they preached deceptively. And this was not what God had asked Levi to do. Levi, the first Levite, that's where the name comes from, Levi was a teacher. Aaron and his, and his sons after him, teachers of the law. And they did so for the good of the people, not for the good of themselves. But here, the preaching is deceptive. It's for themselves, not for the people. Third, we have first polluted worship and then deceptive preaching. And something's happening in the community that God really despises. And that is unfaithfulness to marriage. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So initially, this looks like God is just condemning marrying people from another nation who worship another God. Now, we have throughout the Old Testament instances of interracial, interethnic, intercultural marriage that are celebrated in good. In fact, Moses was involved in one of these, and when his sister and brother condemned him for it, God struck them with leprosy. So this is not and cannot be twisted in any way to demean or to disallow something like an interracial marriage. That's not what's happening here. But there was a problem of people marrying outside of the Jewish faith and then worshiping the gods of their foreign wives. The idolatry was the issue. But that's not the heart of the issue here. That's the result. There's something much worse happening. The second thing you do 
You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates his wife and divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What was happening in this time of economic downturn was that Men at this point, they were divorcing their wives in order to marry the wives of other gods in the hopes that those other gods would meet their economic needs. This was the use and abuse of the women in their own community for the sake of economic help. They were divorcing the wives of their youth, hating the wife of their youth because maybe she over there can help me out economically. Maybe there's something better for me there. And God's looking at this and he's seeing the way the women are being treated in the community. The way they're being abandoned, the way that they're being abused. Because they're not getting anything economically. They're not marrying up. They're lost now. They're absolutely economically despondent. And God is looking at this and saying, how dare you do this? How dare you show such little regard? For this covenant of marriage that I was witness to and I bound you together by my spirit and yet you're breaking this off in the hope that another God can help you if you marry a different woman? You can see the way this is all starting to fall apart. Ezra and Nehemiah, they'll condemn the exact same thing that Malachi is seeing here. Because the people of God are being destroyed by the men who are supposed to be leading in the community. The whole point of these unions was, as God says, godly offspring to pass the faith down from generation to generation. But now they're betraying that faith by marrying outside of the faith for the hope that that faith over there is going to be better and more advantageous for them in the moment. And so they are displaying a profound unfaithfulness to marriage. And that's demonstrated through the use and abuse of women rather than the loving care of women in the community. Fourth, this was just one form of injustice. God gives a broader description of this. He says, I will draw near to you for judgment in verse 5. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppressed the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You're asking me whether or not I really love you? Well, you're polluting your worship. Your preaching is deceptive. You're abusing women, and you're promoting injustice of all kinds. This, the injustice, sorcery, adultery, false witness, the oppression of hired workers by not paying them the way they're supposed to be paid. That's literally against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. 
They're oppressing the hired worker. They're oppressing the widow. They're oppressing the orphan. And they're thrusting aside those migrants who are among them. You're saying, you're, you're promoting injustice as if it's okay, as if it's fine. And you're asking, have I stopped loving you? Are you saying I've done nothing for you? The diagnosis thus far has been problematic. He keeps going. There's two more. Two more things wrong with this car that is Israel. Theft. They're actually stealing from God. I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, in your economic struggle, you've stopped giving to me, but I'm the one who has access to everything. I'll open the storehouses of heaven for you. You see, because God doesn't need the tithes. He's not sitting there going, man, really wish I had a little extra coin. My people aren't paying the way they should. He's not Persia. That's part of the apologetic here. Persia saying, give us more, give us more, give us more. God's saying, I got all that I need. But if your heart was with me, you would demonstrate that through your tithes and offerings. You would demonstrate in the way that you gave to me. And in response, I would pour out blessing on you. But you don't. And therefore, you're suffering. Finally, in the face of this, the people of Israel hear this and they do something really shocking. A lot of times, God judges the people and the people repent. In the face of this judgment, here's the sixth, the diagnose, sixth piece of this diagnosis. They reject him. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, the hearts of the people were getting a diagnosis of what's going on here and it's rotten to the core. And when they're called on it, they say, it's vain to serve God. There's no profit in this. Other nations, they worship their gods, and look what they get. There's profit. Worship God, do these things. God makes you rich. There's no profit in this for us. Why would we do this? It's pointless. It's vain. We're not going to worship God. And so they reject him. 
And evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So this check engine light, this cry, hey God, how have you loved us? And actually, when you dig underneath, it's not an issue with God, it's an issue with the people. It's an issue with the people. And the diagnosis is dire. Polluted worship, deceptive preaching, unfaithfulness in marriage, promotion of injustice, stealing from God, even rejecting God outright. That's what the people are doing. And they've cried out, God, have you stopped loving us? In what we just read, there is a treatment. This is back in verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I will return to you. And here's what that returning is going to look like. If they return, if they repent and turn back to the Lord, here's what his returning to them will look like. First, God will cleanse his people. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. God has been described as a consuming fire elsewhere in the scriptures. He'll be described this way again in the book of Hebrews. And sometimes that fire is a fire of judgment that comes and consumes and destroys. We'll see that in a moment. But the, the focus of the fire here is not destruction, it's refining. If you have gold and it's covered in impurities, you put it in the fire, those impurities are burned away and you get the gold. Fuller soap is the other picture here. This is laundry. This is a very practical everyday thing that people would have dealt with. Your clothes are dirty. You use something called fuller soap to scrape away the dirt. And when you're done, your clothes are clean again. God is saying, I'm coming in that way. I'm coming to burn away the impurities. I'm coming to cleanse you and make you new. I'm coming to redeem and restore and heal. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi. He starts at the top. He starts with the priests. I'll purify them and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings in righteousness. And then, because of that, now the worship life is fixed. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in, and as in former years. God is saying to his people, you've done all of this. And I'm still not going to reject you. In fact, I'm going to come. I'm going to come myself. And I'll refine you. And I will clean you. And I'll make you new again. One of the things that's a theme throughout the Old Testament is the righteous remnant. There is no uh, complete destruction here of the people because there is a, there's a group that really do believe in what God is doing and in God's love for them. They're found in chapter 3, verse 16. They hear all of this. They hear the diagnosis, and here's their response. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They're like, we got to talk about this. because the, the diagnosis is dire. 
And the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them, of the, before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There is the destructive power of God's consuming fire. Part of the way that he refines and cleanses as he destroys those whose lives are marked with sinful rebellion and not with faith. The doctrine of hell is not a New Testament doctrine. It is an Old Testament doctrine as well. It is a doctrine throughout the scriptures because it is a part of God's cleansing work of his world and of his people. He says, the day is coming where I will set the arrogant and all evildoers ablaze. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go up leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will tune the, tune, turn the hearts of fathers to their children the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is fulfilled in the New Testament when John the Baptist comes as in the spirit of Elijah to be the forerunner of the one who would come to save, but also to purify. When Christ comes again, this is what we see in the book of Revelation. We see him returning to save his people, but part of that salvation is a purifying fire. Peter will say that the earth will be burned up, and that's not a literal destruction of the earth. That is a purifying of the earth so that it might be renewed again and so that the people of God might live in a new heaven and a new earth because of the refining work of God. The diagnosis is a profound level of sin. The treatment is that God will not leave them there. He will come, he will cleanse, he will save his people. That's the story of Malachi. It begins with this. It begins with a warning light. It's there in verse 2 of chapter 1. And he cries out, how have you loved us? But the answer, the answer to this heart cry is to say, look at all the things that are going on in your life, and you're wondering, where is the love? Let's read 2 to 5. It begins with this, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered, we'll rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build. I'll tear down. They'll be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's saying, listen, I've loved you. 
You want evidence that I've loved you? Look at the people I haven't loved. Look what's happened to Edom. And we may wonder, well, God doesn't God love everybody? Yes. But this is where our understanding of the sovereignty of God is so important. He has saved his people. He saves his people. He chose Jacob over Esau for no reason other than his love and goodness and mercy. He saved Jacob. And we say, well, that's not fair. Why wouldn't he save both of them? Well, you're right. It's not fair. If it was fair, he would have saved neither of them. Because in our sin, in our brokenness, we deserve this fire that burns away impurities. We are so marked by sin that what is fair is destruction, not salvation. In his grace and his mercy and his goodness, he looks at Jacob and he says, I will save you. In his goodness and his mercy and his grace, he looks at each and every one of us and he says, I love you because I love you and I call you to be my people and I join you together, Gentiles and Jews alike. I join you together in Christ that you might be saved because I love you, because I have loved you. You're saying, how have I loved you? Look around and see what I've given you in Christ. When we are crying out as Christians, God, prove that you've loved us. What we are to do in this moment is to look at the diagnosis here and ask the Holy Spirit to say, hey, diagnose my soul. Is this true about me? Am I giving Jesus just the last bit? Is my worship polluted because I'm not bringing my best? I'm just bringing whatever's left over. Is the preaching that I'm preaching to myself or preaching to others or the preaching I'm receiving only those things that make me feel good or confirm my own understanding of things? Am I allowing preaching to deceive? Have I been unfaithful within my marriage in seeking other comfort, other blessing from outside the marriage? Am I okay with injustice? Am I okay with injustice because the people around me are okay with injustice because the society is okay with injustice? Or am I willing to say, no, that's wrong and pursue justice? Do we promote injustice either actively or passively in our own lives? Am I stealing from God? Am I rejecting him? Because I've decided in my own heart that circumstances dictate that he doesn't love me. God has loved us. He's loved us so much that though we are sinners, he died for us. He loved us so much that he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the earth. We are able to love him because he first loved us. That's what the apostle John says. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus for us. And now in response, he says, now just return to me. Return to me. If you feel like God is distant, if you feel that God doesn't love you, I can guarantee you based on scripture, God is not the one who moved. Return to me and I'll return to you. And I will cleanse you. And I'll burn away those impurities. I'll refine you like gold or like silver. I'll cleanse you. This is what the table does for us. It doesn't save us. But when we come to this table... We receive grace that sustains us and we are called to confess our sin on our way to this table because the grace 
of Jesus Christ is sometimes a severe mercy that must burn away, wash away those impurities. And so this is a time when we come to the table to confess our sin. Not because we aren't saved in Christ, but because we are called to return. And oh, how often do we rebel and walk away? Would you allow in this moment the Spirit to diagnose your own soul and then confess your sin, return to Christ, and he will return to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, though it is a hard word this morning. God, it is sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around these things. It feels dark even. And yet you have loved us so much that you've sent Jesus for us and you call us to a kingdom way of life, to walk worthy of the calling to which you've called us. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work convicting us, showing us that if we feel you're distant from us, it's because we've wandered away. Would we return to you? Would we confess? Maybe it's one of those areas that we talked about. Maybe it's an area completely different. We confess forgive us. We return to you. Return to us the joy of our salvation. We ask that this sacrament, this means of grace, would do the work of bringing us back to Jesus, that we might know his comfort, his presence, his love. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.